preventing pain, fear, and suffering of animals through nationwide education and awareness from all across the globe. This is Animal Radio. Well, hello, you little furry creature lover, you. This weekend on Animal Radio, actor Ed Begley Jr. is joining us. Very good, Judy. Woohoo! Pocket pet professor Mark Barone is back. ABC Good Morning America's Dr. Marty Becker. He's talking about breed-specific foods. Is that really necessary? Is it a good idea or just a marketing gimmick? We'll find out. Also, animal communicator Joy Turner is on the phone with us today. And your phone calls... At 866-405-8405. You know, there's a lot of celebrities out there that are talking the talk. Many of them... Well, they're just talking. And a few of them are actually walking the walk and have done that for a long time. Imagine one who actually has a bus pass in his wallet. Uh, we're talking about a, an actor and a celebrity? An actor celebrity wow. that carries a bus pass and uses it. We're talking about Ed Begley Jr. Hi, Ed. How are you doing? Thank you so much for having me on. I'm doing great here in L.A. today. How are you doing there? Uh, well, it's a little bit of snow hitting the ground for the first time. Much needed water in this part of the country right now. Yeah, here too. Yes, all over, really. Yep. Uh, your new program, Living with Ed on HGTV. We love it. Thank you. And I understand that coming out in just, a well, I guess in a month or so, uh, Living Like Ed, the book. Correct. And it's a guide to the eco-friendly life. What are we going to learn about in the book? A lot of ways to save energy, protect the environment, and to save money. That's a good thing. You know, I, I urge everybody to do a lot of the things that are cheapest and easiest first, you know, to pick the low-hanging fruit, to, you know, try a compact fluorescent bulb, to try an energy-saving thermostat, to ride the bus, as you suggested, or ride a bike, if weather and fitness permit, to do all those things that are cheap and easy. And in so doing, you can save a lot of dough. Well, a lot of people won't listen when you talk about saving the environment, but the minute you say save money, <laughs> they're interested. Yes. You've always been interested in this. This isn't like you hopping on the bandwagon. This is something that's always been a part of your life. What made it so integral for you? Well, I started in 1970. That was the year of the first Earth Day, and that got me going. Being a Boy Scout got me going. I was in scouting and developed a love of the outdoors. But the biggest influence was a negative one. It was growing up in smoggy L.A. Mm. By 1970, having survived the 50s and 60s in smoggy L.A., I had a belly full. I went enough already. I don't want to be part of the problem. I want to begin to be part of the solution. And uh, I started, uh, you know... Recycling. I started composting. I bought a, an electric car in 1970, buying all biodegradable soaps and detergents. I became a vegetarian in 1970 and did all those different things that I thought would uh, be good for the environment and good for my health. As an animal lover, you, as you mentioned, you became a vegetarian. A very tough transition for some people to make. What was it like for you? It was very hard, and it... it it didn't last long in 1970. I began <laughs> eating fish again because I traveled so much. Uh, in 1970, you'd be on a, a motion picture somewhere, and all they'd have would be canned beans and mashed potatoes. You know, there was no selection. You'd go into health food stores some places, and all they had were those Loma Linda veggie links that were not very tasty. Uh -huh. Now there's a whole universe of choices. so much easier to, to be uh, consistent with that diet now. You can get all kinds of great vegetarian meals anywhere. You can go into any restaurant, and they've got a vegetarian section of the menu. It's rare when they don't. Yes. Yeah. And then even on the set there, wherever you work, you may uh, be able to get a vegetarian meal. I mean, the whole world has changed. Every caterer that I see on any movie has vegetarian fare and really good stuff. They have delicious tofu done up, you know, with sesame sauce and, you know, all sorts of stuff. I mean, every... 
every uh, movie set, every caterer really caters to uh, all people. You know, there's a lot of grips, electricians, different people, teamsters that want, you know, they want their meat and potatoes and God bless them. But uh, other people like myself want uh, a different fare and they supply that and it's delicious. And you see a lot of... Uh, a lot of people who aren't vegetarians going for it. Yes. There's a stigma that being a vegetarian means tofu. I mean, like one equals the other. And that's not the situation, is it? No. I grow a lot of food in my backyard. I've got some delicious cauliflower right now and broccoli, lettuce. It's a beautiful day in L.A. My uh, solar panels are, are humming because there's great sun hitting them right now. i got a wind turbine up there that's spinning so fast it's nearly a blur. Uh, I'm getting a lot of power from the area around my house. It's a little 1,700-square-foot house, too. It's not a big house, uh, and I but I make use of every square inch. I took out my lawn right away. Who wants to waste a bunch of water on a lawn? I'm not a golfer. I don't need a putting green. I don't have any cows that need to munch on grass. So I took the lawn out, put in drought-tolerant plants, and then put a lot of... Uh, you know, uh, fruit trees in the midst of the drought tolerance stuff. Okay. I'm getting an energy audit right now. This is the greatest thing. If you hear some uh, subtle noise in the background, we have a guy with an infrared device checking the heat loss. You know, this this is under the category of physician heal thyself. I talk about energy savings and I have all this great stuff, but they're finding right away ways that I can save more energy. This is highly expert crew in my house right now who are finding ways where I can uh, further insulate cracks that I didn't know that occurred uh -huh. years ago with the 94 earthquake, and they're finding it right away, and they're helping me save uh, energy and save money. You have a few pets, don't you? I do. I have a dog that we got from uh, a friend. Uh, my friend Robin Lippin's sister couldn't keep the dog. They had moved to a new place where they couldn't keep the dog, so she was five when we got her, and that was... 1996, that was 12 years ago, so she's 17 now. Wow. And I have a cat that's uh, 18 years, uh, I'm, I'm sorry, yeah, a cat that I got in 95, so the cat is 12 years old. I've got a 12-year-old cat, then I've got a bunch of feral cats that I feed. There's four of them left. There At one point, were about 14 cats on my premises because they were feral. I couldn't trap them until uh -huh. I got really clever. I finally, instead of food, put in a have-a-heart trap. I put something other than food to get them to go in. You'll probably figure out what it is. What did I put in the have-a-heart trap other than food to get that female cat to go in? Uh, you know what? Let's throw that out to the listeners. Yes. Can we do that? one 405 8405 What did Ed use to trap these ferals instead of food instead of food and call us right now if, if you think you know uh with these animals and being an environmentalist you must be able to combine the two how can we become more environmentally friendly with our pets i know that opening a brand new can of food every day is kind of a mess uh there's yep. a, yeah what else can we do you know, use the best pet food possible, organic pet food with the highest quality. You know, keep things very tidy. Keep the bowls clean a lot so you don't have a bunch of, you know, uh, pests around where you have to use, God help us, I would never use pesticides, you know, but use anything, you know, uh, have the problem having to deal with, with pests. Um, you know, to groom them in the best way, organic grooming and the best kinds of shampoos, what have you, to not use toxic stuff in your animals and not give them toxic food. Um, those are a couple things that leap to mind. And if you have a lot of animals, which we do, you want to, as a result of that, change your air conditioner, heating and air unit filter a lot because um, all that pet hair will clog the filter. Mm. Ah. 
Those All right. were a couple you, of tips right off the tip of my tongue. You don't think about that, but <laughs> I was just thinking about the filter here in the studios. I looked at it last night, and it, uh, it, it is absolutely full of hair because yep. we have four studio cats. And you don't think about that, that it's it's drawing a lot more energy for the central heating here in the studio right. just because of that. And if you have a pet, you're going to have more hair in your household. Correct. Oh, very good. We're with Ed Begley, Jr. When we come back, we're going to find out what the magic he, he has to trap the feral cats that isn't food right here on Animal Radio. You're listening to Animal Radio. You can learn more about today's guest at AnimalRadio.com. Log on. Learn more. Did you know that dogs can get worm infections just by eating grass and that those same parasites can also infect humans? Protect your dog and your family by deworming your dog twice a year with Safeguard Canine Dewormer. For more information, visit www.safe-guard.com. That's S-A-F-E-G-U-A-R-D.com. Hi, I'm Jay Moore, and as a sports fan, I can tell you there's nothing quite better than spending a day in the park playing catch with a beautiful lady. Like Shirley, my dog. Listen, adopt a pet. They are the most loyal companions you will ever have. Visit Pets911.com or call 1-888-PETS-911. Hooray! For more information, go to Pets911.com. Proud to be a partner of Animal Radio. Hey, you want to keep a secret from your dog? It's the new fish sticks from Canine Caviar. They're good for your dog's teeth, gums, and also his achy joints. And fish sticks from Canine Caviar are 100% natural, completely digestible, and contain no chemical preservatives, additives, or fillers, and they're low in calories. But don't tell your dog that. All they care about is that they taste good. Get your dog fish sticks at CanineCaviar.com. That's www.CanineCaviar.com. Every once in a while, there comes along a special group of animal lovers that stands strongly in defense of the voiceless. Animal People is that newspaper for people who really care about the animals. Animal People is published ten times yearly. The publisher is a nonprofit corporation dedicated to exposing the existence of cruelty to animals and to informing and educating you so that animal lovers worldwide can eliminate such cruelty. Your subscription is $24 a year and is 100% tax deductible. Get Animal People's fair and accurate investigative reporting from the industry watchdog. Visit our website at www.animalpeoplenews.org. That's www.animalpeoplenews.org to subscribe to the news for people who care about animals. Animal People. Subscribe today at www.animalpeoplenews.org. you know that dogs can get worm infections just from eating grass and that those same parasites can also infect humans? Ew! Gross! Thank goodness there's a safe and easy way to eliminate and prevent the major worms that infect dogs. Safeguard Canine Dewormer. Just sprinkle it on your dog's food twice a year. And that's it? Yep. For more information, visit www.safe-guard.com. That's S-A-F-E-G-U-A-R-D.com. It's the best way I know to protect my dog and my family against intestinal worm infections. Preventing pain, fear, and suffering of animals through nationwide education and awareness. From all across the globe, this is Animal Radio. We're back on Animal Radio, and we're with Ed Begley Jr. Living with Ed and living like Ed, the book coming out February 19th. Uh, Ed is with us. He has posed us a question just before the break. He had uh, to trap some feral cats, and he didn't use food. Now, this has been a dome scratcher for me. (laughs) 
I, I have no clue. I'm thinking catnip, maybe? I don't know. That's a good answer. Is that a good answer? Yeah. Catnip's a good answer. And keep in mind, I tried food. They wouldn't go. I mean, some of them went in for, to get the food, and I trapped them, put a collar on them, so I knew I had fixed them. But uh-huh. one female would not go in. She would starve before she would go in because she knew there was danger in there for her. She felt there was danger. Uh-huh. Uh, and she would not go in. So I put something else in there, and there was a slim time frame of which I could do this. It was just a few days. I had a window of opportunity of a few days to do it. It was something that would occur at a certain interval, and if I did it within a few days, it would work. And what did I put in there? Judy, do you have a guess? I do, but you know what? It has to be a female cat that you're trying to trap, correct? Oh. Correct. It's a female. That's yeah. the clue. That's the clue? That's the clue. That's the clue. That should help you figure it out. one 405 Hi, who's this? This is Cornell. Hi, Cornell. How are you doing? Good, good. How are you doing? I want to sport a guess at what Ed Begley puts in his traps to trap his feral cats. It's not food. Take Other feral cats. Other feral cats. What is the answer, Ed? The answer is her offspring. I put her kittens in there, and you had to do it when they're just like a day or two old, because after that they're wandering around so much, they'll keep hitting the trigger and will keep closing. You have to get them when they're kind of just a a day or two old, very young and barely uh, not even open their eyes yet, Uh and that seemed to work. That's how I finally, she finally went in for that. How did you come up with that? I guess that's pretty simple when you think about it, huh? Having had this population explosion for years and then finally stopping it to a certain extent, but this one cat kept having kittens. And it's not a cat you can just say, come here, kitty. And, you know, I couldn't trap it no matter what I did. I couldn't catch it. It was very smart. So I put her kittens in. She went in for those, and I had her fixed, and she's still living on the property to this day, but making no more babies. And we thank you so much for joining us today. Living Like Ed is the book, A Guide to Eco-Friendly Life, coming out February 19th. And of course, uh, the HGTV programming, Living with Ed. There's a lot you can do. There's lots of ways you can you know, save energy, you can uh, save money, and it's all in the book, Living Like Ed, and it's on the show, Living With Ed. One more thing before we go, Ed. I wanted to talk real quick about Begley's Best Products. Can you tell us a little bit about this? Begley's Best is a line of non-toxic cleaning products. I sell them at Begley'sBest.com or at EdBegley.com, and they're in Whole Foods and Wild Oats and lots of markets, Mother's Markets, Lassen's Markets, and they're totally non-toxic. What I want to do is to do what... Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward did with their Newman's own product uh, line to have good products and then give a lot of money away to charity. We give money away to uh, Animal Acres. We give money away to the Humane Society of the U.S. We give money away to the Coalition for Clean Air, Midnight Mission, Heal the Bay, Tree People, lots of good folks. And uh, I take no salary, so I can give it away as quick as it comes in. Wow, and there's a website? Yep. Begley'sBest.com. As you know, there's no apostrophes on the Internet, Internet web addresses. So it's Begley's, B-E-G-L-E-Y-S, best, B-E-S-T, dot com. And you can get the products there or at Whole Foods. And, of course, links to everything you've heard on today's show at AnimalRadio.com. Ed Begley, Jr. on Animal Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you. We go from a tall guy to a short guy. <laughs> Do you know if he's short? They might both be tall. Do we have Mark Marone on the phone? Is he, he's in on three, isn't he? Yes, he is. Hi, Mark. Greetings and salutations. How are you doing? Happy New Year. All is well. Thank you, and same to you. Oh, it sounds like you're just <laughs> getting over a little cold. Yes, I'm horse, I'm pony, however you want to put it. <laughs> oh, my. Okay, well, you're also at work. Not a lot of people know this, or maybe a lot of people know this, but you have a pet store. You That's have- what I do. That's my laboratory. 
Yeah, well, that's, uh, you know, a lot of a lot of us, we have to sit behind the microphones or the TV cameras, and we don't get to get our hands on. But you made sure uh, that you have hands on 24, well, not 24 hours a day, but most of your day. You're dealing with uh, customers and actually dealing with the problems that uh, a lot of us have to deal with. Mm-hmm. Hands on. And uh, the reason I called on you this time of year will actually just... Just post-Christmas, you see the kids, uh, they're kind of upset with mom and dad because they didn't get the dog or they didn't get the cat. Maybe mom or dad felt that was too much responsibility for the children. There are great starter pets, usually pocket pets, and you are the expert as far as I'm concerned. That's what people say. What kind of good pocket pets or starter pets for uh, a kid that wanted a dog or cat but really needs to demonstrate a little responsibility first? Well, it all depends on what mom wants to take care of. Mm. Exactly. It comes down to mom. Mom will always end up taking care of it no matter what the kids say, right? Correct. So, I mean, people say, you know, what's the best pet for a child? What's the best dog for a child? It's whatever the child's mother wants to take care of. (laughs) Fortunately for most mothers, rodents, what we call pocket pets, don't need as much care as some other animals do. Rodents being like uh, rats or mice? Hamsters, gerbils. Okay. Those are the four big ones. Rats also make very nice pets. I had rats as kids. Yeah, rats are great. Rats are a little bit bigger, though, and need a bit larger cage. Okay, so what kind of maintenance will mom and dad have to worry about? Well, again, it's not that much. I mean, let's assume that we had two gerbils. Okay, I like gerbils because gerbils like to live in pairs. They like to live in twos. They're diurnal, which means they're awake during the day. Okay. Okay, so by doing it this way, now a gerbil is awake during the day, a gerbil... Can, if you have two children, and they each want one, you only want one cage, that's perfect also. So when you have two gerbils in one cage, a glass 10-gallon fish tank is fine. Mm-hmm. You have a water bottle hanging there, a dish with some food in it. You use a, a bedding that's non-allergenic, like aspen wood bedding, or perhaps a bedding made of recycled newspaper. Carefresh is a good one. We put uh, some toys, some chew blocks, that sort of thing in there, and we're done. I wish we sure the water bottle has water in it. Be sure that we have fresh food in there. Once a week, we change it all and wash it all out. There's no animal in the whole world that's less work than that. And yet the child gets to interact with it, gets to take it out, gets to play with it, and the animal can have a name, can respond to the name. So it's a very responsive pet for the child, keeping the child's interest, but yet very little work for mom. And you can easily tell the sex, and should you get two of the same sex? Do you want the opposite sex? Well, you you don't want the opposite sex if you want babies. Gerbils are one of the few monogamous rodents. The male helps the female take care of the babies. Wow. Okay. However, if you get two same-sex siblings, two males or two females, they'll very happily live together. Uh-huh. See, this is the opposite of hamsters, which like to be kept by themselves. They're solitary animals. Plus, hamsters are nocturnal. There's two types of hamsters that people keep as pets. There's the Syrian hamster, which are the larger ones. People call them teddy bear hamsters sometimes in the long-haired version. When we were kids, we called them golden hamsters. Uh-huh. And then there's a the little uh, Campbell's dwarf hamsters. They're also called Russian dwarf hamsters. Of course, there's many other types that people keep as pets, but those are the two most popular. Now, while uh, hamsters are solitary and gerbils uh, like a buddy, can you mix and match at all? No, there's no combos there. I mean, like if one is awake during the day and one's asleep during the day, so that's definitely not going to work. <laughs> I, I've actually lived in situations like that in college, so uh, I can completely understand you wouldn't want the, the hamster being kept awake or the gerbil being kept awake uh, by the hamster playing at night. What about the reptiles? You hear a lot of kids say they, they want a snake or they want some kind of reptile. I understand that some are very fragile by nature. And they're all very, very, very high maintenance. The nice thing about mammals is they can share our environment. 
whatever the air temperature is, a hamster or a gerbil or a mouse or a rat will do just fine in that same air temperature. But with reptiles, we have to then in turn control their environment. The temperature has to be just right, the humidity has to be just right, plus the diet is a lot more specific than the diet is with all the mammals. And the other thing is it's a very unforgiving situation. If you don't clean a hamster's cage out one week, it's not the end of the world. Mm -hmm. Okay, But with a reptile, if you do something wrong, if you don't do something the right way, the animal's going to die. The fact that the animal dies slowly, all right, you know, that, that people say, oh, well, he's not dead today, so he's okay, but the animal already started to die. He's just dying very, very slowly. Mm. How long do snakes live and how long do gerbils live? Uh, gerbils, unfortunately, most of these small animals are gerbils, the hamsters, about 750 to 800 days. So a couple years. Snakes live a long time. The first pet that I had was uh, Seymour the rat. Uh-huh. And I Rats remember... great. I had Rufus the rat when I was... Rufus. He was great. They require a little bit of stimulation. You need to put a little of, uh, 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 like, a, a ball in there or some kind of toys to play with. Yeah, uh, rats are very, very intelligent. They're very, very cognitive of the surroundings. But again, like the rats are larger than some of these other animals. They eat a larger tank. Like, you couldn't keep a rat in a 10-gallon aquarium like you could with the... Uh, um, with the gerbils. They would need at least a 20 or a 30 gallon tank or better yet an all wire cage, which again is more work for mom. Mm, okay. Mark Marone with us, and I'm going to let him. I feel so sorry that he. I'm so. You should have told me that you were sick because. <laughs> I'm not sick. I just lost my voice. Just lost your voice. Okay. I thank you so much for joining us today. I know that there's a website, several websites. If you want to learn more, where can we go? Oh, just go to paratotheworld.com. That's our site. We'll answer all questions cheerfully. Cheerfully, just like that. Cheerfully. The fastest talking guy in pet business, Mark Marone, joining us. We appreciate it once again. Thank you very much. You're listening to Animal Radio. You can learn more about today's guest at AnimalRadio.com. Log on. Learn more. Hey, all you animal lovers out there. Last February, I had my dog Rudy neutered during Spay Day USA. This year, I'm going to enter him in the pet photo contest at humanesociety.org slash spayday. It runs January 15th through February 29th. You can upload your pet's picture, get your friends to vote for him, and win some cool prizes. So get out there and take some pictures. Good luck trying to beat my Rudy. Presented by the Humane Society of the United States. Sponsored by Nature's Miracle and powered by Pets 911. Upload your pet photo at humanesociety.org slash spayday. Well, you know, one of the ways you can protect yourself against arthritis is to increase your physical activity. And while we may have some trouble getting motivated, sometimes a furry family member can help us. Christopher Michaels has the story. When you ask yourself, how am I going to get more physical activity, you probably don't think of the family dog, but you should. Sarah Reeve of the California chapter of the Arthritis Foundation says your four-footed friend can help you walk away joint pain and arthritis. Walking your dog for half an hour or even 10 minutes three times a day will help to significantly reduce pain and stiffness. In addition, the walk is good for your dog, too, because dogs also suffer from arthritis. So you're really doing two good things at once. It can be tempting to rest instead of exercise to let the pain subside and the stiffness go away. But doctors say physical activity helps. If you and your dog go out for regular walks, the stiffness and joint pain may actually subside. This will help both of you to decrease further deterioration of bones and cartilage while also improving your ability to perform daily activities. The Arthritis Foundation hosts hundreds of pet-friendly arthritis walk events around the country to fight the nation's number one cause of disability, arthritis. For more information on the arthritis walk nearest you, log on to www.arthritis.org. This is Christopher Michael reporting. You're listening to Animal Radio. You can learn more about today's guest at animalradio.com. Log on. Learn more. 
Hi, this is Richard Karn from Home Improvement, and you're listening to Animal Radio. Now remember to spray and neuter your dog. <laughs> it's a good idea to spray and neuter your animals. PetGadgets.com. If you're looking for innovative and high-tech pet products, PetGadgets.com. Unique and high-tech products that you won't find at your local pet store. PetGadgets.com. Find the latest products that will make life easier for you and your pet. PetGadgets.com. Everything from massage beds to a remote-controlled tennis ball launcher. PetGadgets.com. Be top dog in your neighborhood. Shop at PetGadgets.com. Preventing pain, fear, and suffering of animals through nationwide education and awareness from all across the globe. This is Animal Radio. How far, Judy, would you go to save a cat, huh? I'd go all the way. Not like this guy. I always thought I had a rough life. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I got an easy life. I got a good life. (laughs) Our next guest uh, makes me look like Paris Hilton. Alan Rabinowitz is joining us. He has written a book, Life in the Valley of Death, and it may appear to be fiction when you first crack it open, but it is a very truthful story about your fight for tigers and to save the tigers. I've been working on big cats for my entire career, which which this will date me a bit, but, uh, but spans from coming out of graduate school with a Ph.D. in 1978 when I first went and started studying, studying jaguars and working on jaguars and setting up the world's first jaguar preserve in Belize. But that invariably led me over to Asia to try to tackle the world's greatest cat, the world's largest cat, the tiger, particularly because they're in such, in such trouble, and they've been, they've been in trouble for the last two decades or so, even though people haven't really seen it until recently. So I've spent... The better part of the last 10 years, no, it's actually more than that. It's going on almost 20 years in Asia, trying to assess what the status of the tiger is, finding that they're not nearly as abundant in in even existing forests where they once roamed in large numbers. The tiger, by by the early 1900s, we estimate, well, best guesses are that there were probably around 100,000 tigers throughout the existing tiger range at that time. Right now, our best guesstimate is somewhere in the area of two to 4,000 tigers left in the world, in the wild. And they're still going down, is that correct? They are still going down as we speak, yes. Mm. So you must so, be up against a lot of odds. There's poachers, I'm sure. There's all kinds of dark people you've run into. Part of the problem with the tiger over even the other cats is that its body parts are and have been throughout millennia highly valued for the Chinese medicinal trade. Mm. So a, a tiger broken down into all its various parts that can be sold in the trade market is a very valuable commodity. Tell us at least one of the stories that makes you sort of reconsider what you're doing. <laughs> well... One of the stories that makes it there, there are actually numerous ones. That's I, mean, what I mean, there's, there's when I was, I was tracking tigers in in Thailand, and there were there were traps set up not for me specifically, but for 
for the forest guards who were going after the poachers trying to kill tigers and other wildlife. And I happened to be out in the jungle in the early morning, long before the forest guards wake up, and I actually fell into one of these traps, which were made exactly as they were in the Vietnam War. They're, they're called punji stick traps. They're, they're basically a small pit filled with sharpened bamboo stakes in mm. the pit. And in the war, they used to rub the stakes with human feces, which would cause massive infection, and often the limb would have to be amputated or the person died. Fortunately, with this trap, there, was, there were just the sharpened bamboo stakes, with, and they weren't rubbed in anything. Mm-hmm. And I went into one of those traps, and I had a bamboo stake pierce right through my, my sneaker. I was wearing mm-hmm. sneakers, as I always do in the jungle. Mm-hmm. It passed through my sneaker, through my foot, and came out the other side of the top. And I was, I was riding a small motorbike at the time, actually, a small motocross bike in the jungle. And I went into this trap. And I had to break the stake in half and plug the hole with a piece of torn clothing and try to get out to a uh, hospital as soon as possible. And even then, I had massive infection, and I almost lost my, lost my foot. But fortunately, a doctor saved it. But you got right back on the horse. Of course, because what else is there to do? There's, when, you're, when your passion is, is saving cats, and that's... That's the, the the end all to everything. Then that's what you do, no matter what. I mean, there's I could I could be in New York City working in the stock market, and I could be accosted with a gun, or or have something just as bad, if not worse, happen to me. So you you take your chances. Um, there have been times when I've run into opium plantations or or other drug facilities right in the heart of tiger range and that was a fairly close call one of the closest calls frankly was when i just almost tripped a shotgun trap which was put a put along a trail uh where if you if you hit the string then a shotgun blast would go off at you and it actually wasn't against the forest guards or against me it it, it, it just happened to be where an opium plantation was, and I was following a tiger into that region, and it was trying to protect somebody's opium plantation, and I almost stepped into that string when one of my men grabbed me by the neck and pulled me back because he had seen it. Mm. When you say men, how many people do you travel with? I usually mm. try to keep very small teams because that causes us the, the least problem. Usually about three to four, sometimes five or six, depending on how many translators I need and how much supplies we might have to be bringing. Now, most of your foes being two-legged, were the tigers ever a threat to you? No, you know, that's a, I've never been, I mean, there have been some, some incredible adventures, such as I, twice what's happened to me is I was actually tracking a tiger on some very, very fresh track, thinking I might encounter it or possibly find its kill and after several hours this happened on both occasions i finally decided that i had to get back to to camp before dark and i turned around and there was the tiger the tiger i had been tracking had circled around and for for about 10 to 15 minutes 
had been tracking me, and, and I know that because of how I backtracked it. But that tiger had come out of the forest and was walking in back of me the whole time I was stooping down, looking at its tracks. It could have killed me any time it wanted, and I would have wouldn't wouldn't have known what had even hit me. But but it didn't. It was curious. It was uh-huh. wondering why this other thing was following it. How are you received by the general public there? Do they think of you as a threat? Or what, where is there, by the way? Ideas? Well, that's a good question. There, there for, for me is basically throughout Tiger Range, though much of my work has occurred in Thailand and in Indochina, which has mostly been centered in Thailand, but, more, but most recently, for the last 10 to 15 years, I've been in Burma in Myanmar, setting up the world's largest tiger reserve. The local people, at first, they, they, they react to me the way they do to most, to most foreign scientists in these remote areas. They wonder how, how I could possibly be so wealthy with so much time on my hands that <laughs> instead of having to actually work for my survival, I can afford to be tracking tigers. Um, they never quite uh, understand that, nor can I really justify my existence that way to them. But once they come to respect me and see that I'm living out there just as they are and I'm willing to, to put my whole being on the line for these cats, which, which they respect as well, even when they have problems with them, I, I always gain a measure of respect from the people. They want to, no matter who it is, from the... From, from the dictatorial government in Myanmar to the, to the poorest local person, I always find an element of them not wanting to lose the tiger, of, of the tiger not wanting to, to go away. Well, what they w- would like is to figure out how they could benefit or, or how their lives can be better, but they do not want all the tigers dead. And that's been one of the greatest handles I've had to work on with both governments and with local people. And you're doing this all for an animal that you're allergic to? <laughs> is this true? I am, it is true. I have always, people, people <laughs> often ask me, why do you love cats? And I have never loved cats per se, because as long as I remember, I've been allergic to cats, mm. all cats of all sizes, house cats to the great cats. Even when I'd capture a jaguar or work on a tiger, my whole face would swell up from, uh, from handling them. So I am allergic to cats. But that's, that's irrelevant. That's just part of the small price to pay for working on what I think is one of the world's most magnificent group of animals. Now, where are you now? What are you up to right now? Well, at this moment, I am sitting at my office at the Bronx Zoo. Oh looking out the window at people coming to, to see the animals at the Bronx Zoo, many of them coming to see our new tiger, our relatively new tiger exhibit, Tiger Mountain. But I'm getting ready to leave in February to go back to, to Myanmar to make sure that the, that the world's largest tiger reserve is on track. Then I have to jump over to uh, China where we're having a snow leopard conference and trying to save the snow leopard in the same way as we have been doing with the jaguars and the tigers and the lions. And then I have to come back to, to Myanmar to, to train and to start other uh, more community development projects for the tigers. 
Wow, what an exciting <laughs> life you live there. If you're intrigued by Alan Rabinowitz here, you've got to pick up the book. It's called Life in the Valley of Death. I have five copies to give away right now at one 405 8405 Otherwise, you can get this on Amazon.com. Any good bookstore, it is on Island Press. Do you have a website? How about the Bronx Zoo? I hate to say, I mean, you, you can go to, to WCS.org. WCS is the Wildlife Conservation Society, which is where the Bronx Zoo is based. And you can learn a lot more about me and my projects. I actually haven't had time to set up my own website. I'm always traveling. I'm always on the move, and I've never taken time. You know to... what? I'll be real honest with you. I don't think that internet thing's going to take off anyway. It's going <laughs> to be a waste of your time there. Right. You keep on saving the cats here. We think you're awesome here at Animal Radio. Alan Rabinowitz on Animal Radio. You're listening to Animal Radio. You can learn more about today's guest at AnimalRadio.com. Log on. Learn more. Hi, this is Shelley Morrison from Willing Grace, and I'm on Animal Radio. Please spay and neuter your pets. Please. Buddy, don't do that. Don't worry. Lots of dogs eat grass. Didn't you hear? Dogs can get worm infections from eggs and larvae in the grass. Those parasites can even infect humans. I know. That's why I give my dog Safeguard K9 Dewormer twice a year. It's a safe and easy way to eliminate and prevent the major intestinal worms that infect dogs and to protect my family against infection. Where can I find out more? Just visit www.safeguard.com. That's S-A-F-E hyphen G-U-A-R-D dot com. Hey, you want to keep a secret from your dog? It's the new fish sticks from Canine Caviar. They're good for your dog's teeth, gums, and also his achy joints. And fish sticks from Canine Caviar are 100% natural, completely digestible, and contain no chemical preservatives, additives, or fillers, and they're low in calories. But don't tell your dog that. All they care about is that they taste good. Get your dog fish sticks at CanineCaviar.com. That's www.caninecaviar.com. Animal Radio is brought to you by the American Anti-Vivisection Society. Stop the FDA from allowing milk and meat from cloned animals to be sold in grocery stores. Contact the American Anti-Vivisection Society for information at www.endanimalcloning.org. This is an Animal Radio News Update, made possible by the Simple Solution Natural line of 100% biodegradable pet care products. The very same company involved with the 2006 pet food recall, Diamond Pet Foods, will pay $3.1 million in a settlement to pet guardians. I'm Hal Abrams. Diamond Pet Foods admitted their South Carolina plant produced pet food that contained a toxic mold. The company openly admits they never tested a shipment of tainted pet food in 2005. According to the settlement agreement, Diamond and its insurance company have already settled about 1,200 related claims for compensation ranging from the price of recalled food to veterinary bills. Now, take in mind, this 2005 recall is unrelated to the contamination problem that prompted recalls of more than 100 pet foods last year. In that case, investigators traced pet deaths to a toxic chemical, melamine, that had been added during manufacturing in China. This has been an Animal Radio News Update, brought to you by the Simple Solution Natural line of 100% biodegradable pet care products. Get more at AnimalRadio.com. 
Does that pesky pet stain keep reappearing after you've cleaned it with a household cleaner? Try Simple Solution Stain and Odor Remover. Simple Solution is formulated specifically for pet stain and odors. The unique enzyme and probacteria formula breaks down the glue-like proteins in pet urine, then absorb all the leftover particles, leaving your carpet completely free of harmful residue. So no more magical reappearing acts or pets returning to the area. Simple Solution products are available at pet specialty stores nationwide. Preventing pain, fear, and suffering of animals through nationwide education and awareness. From all across the globe, this is Animal Radio. Now, while I myself have not made any New Year's resolutions, my my pets have. Yeah, go ahead and laugh now. My pets have made resolutions, and I've actually compiled a list of the top five resolutions that my pets made as seen at AnimalRadio.com. Let's hear them. Are you ready? Yes. Number five, my pet will not eat other animals' poop. He will not eat other animals' poop anymore. That's his, uh, That's a good one. Number four, he will not lick his human's face after eating animal poop. I, uh, that's one, I agree with him. I like That's I even better than the first, yeah. Considering I'm his human. Uh, number three, this is the top five pets, New Year's resolutions, as seen at AnimalRadio.com. It's number three, right? Uh, yes, <laughs> come on, you can do it. I will no longer be beholden to the sound of a can opener. Oh, that's going to be a tough one for them yeah. to follow through on. They tried that last year. It didn't work out. No. Uh, number two, take time from the busy schedule to stop and smell the behinds. They do that anyway. That's not a fair you one. you got to take more time to do that. More time. I don't see how they can do more time. We could time. learn so much from our pets, Judy. <laughs> I'll tell you that right now. And the number one resolution for my pet this year. Yes, let's have a drum roll. She is actually hitting her chest, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> with her uh, bare chest, I might add, with hey. her hands. Are you ready? My pet's number one New Year's resolution for 2008. He's going to grow opposable thumbs, break into the pantry, and decide for himself just how much food is way too much. There's a writer's strike, folks. In April 1961, the Russian cosmonaut Yuri Gagarin was the first man to orbit the Earth. However, he was not the first in space. A female had orbited the Earth three years earlier. On November 3, 1957, Laika, a six-pound female Samoyed terrier mixed dog from the streets of Moscow, blasted her way into the hearts of the world when she became the first Earthling to orbit our home planet in the Russian satellite Sputnik 2. News of the brave pup spread quickly and the world watched in awe as the space age was ushered in. But sadder news spread also as it was revealed that the Russians, in their political haste to be the first in space, had not yet developed the technological means that would allow them to return the courageous Laika safely back to Earth. As the news broke that Laika would not return from space, Response from around the world ranged from sadness to outrage. In the United Kingdom, all friends of dogs were asked to observe a minute of silence every day that Laika was scheduled to be in space. Animal rights groups called on their members to stage protests at Russian embassies. In addition to Laika, the Russians trained other dogs for their space program. As would be expected of most dogs, training and attention produced loyalty and dedication to their tasks, although two of the dogs did run away before their appointed flight time. 
while the others willingly got aboard rockets which lifted them into the unknown frontier of space. Of the 13 dogs the Russians sent into space, five lost their lives in service to the Russian cause. One dog, Strelka, orbited the Earth 18 times in August of 1961 and later gave birth to six healthy puppies. One of the puppies, named Pushinka, was given to President Kennedy as a gift. Pushinka's offspring are still members of the Kennedy family today. Of all the animals sent into space over the past decades, Laika was the only traveler whose safe return to Earth was not accommodated. Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev's insistence on launching a flight to correspond with the 40th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution caused the Russian scientists to sacrifice the technology necessary for Laika's safe return. The official version of Laika's flight was that she would be fed tainted food and by the end of the 10-day journey would die peacefully. Yet immediately after the flight, the Russians concluded that Laika had died after four days due to overheating in the spacecraft. That remained the official word for 40 years, until October of 2002, when a stunning announcement was made at the World Space Congress in Houston that Laika had died only four hours into the flight of Sputnik 2, and she had died due to psychological stress and problems in the space capsule brought on by a failure of the insulating system. Oleg Kosenko, a leading member of the Soviet team who trained and put Laika into space, said at a news conference, the more time passes, the more I'm sorry about it. We did not learn enough from this mission to justify the death of the dog. Today, Laika is remembered over all other canine cosmonauts. Stamps have been printed in her honor. Present-day music groups bear her name. In 1997, a monument to the Soviet Union's fallen space heroes was erected at Star City, the cosmonaut training center near Moscow. Peering from behind the cosmonauts is the image of a small mongrel dog, ears perked. It is Laika, the first of the fallen heroes to orbit Earth. For Voice of the Animal, this is Rayanne Cumulos. I tip my glasses to Laika, memory of yes, Laika there. to Laika. It's just orange juice. <laughs> You're finally out of eggnog. <laughs> Remember to spay and neuter, always adopt from a shelter, and never declaw. We'll see you next week for more Animal Radio right here on this fine station. Have a great week. Bye-bye. This is Animal Radio Network. Well, just before the holidays, our friend, actress, uh, animal advocate, Mother to Melanie Griffith. <laughs> and mother-in-law to Antonio Banderas. Banderas. <laughs> Tippi Hedren, she made the news. Tippi has a wild animal preserve in Acton, California. And during a routine feeding of the tigers, one of Tippi's caretakers was attacked. Uh, this is what the call to 911 sounded like. LA County Fire Operator 2. Sorry, I'm at the sheriff's station. I'll have to transfer call to you for a tiger that fed a worker at the Shambhala Preserve. It's uh, in Acton. Six eight six seven Soledad Canyon Road. Can I speak to you right now? Uh, this is Lancaster Sheriff Station. You know, I'm gonna put you on real quick. I have another one. It might be them. Okay. Fire? Yes. Yeah, it's a male forty bit of the net. The tiger secured. It was bit of neck by tiger? Yes. And the tiger secured in the compound. No, we're going to a house, apartment, a business. What no, it's a preserve. It's an animal preserve. They have like elephants, lions that they use for movies. It's called the uh, Roar Foundation Shambhala Preserve. Do they have any medical attention there? Uh, you know, I didn't ask them. Okay. All right, we got help already on the way. I'll give them a call. All right. Shambhala. 
This is LA County Fire Department. We have help on the way to 6867 Soledad Canyon Road in Acton. Is that correct? Yes, it is. Okay, the gentleman that got bit, uh, tell me how bad is this? Um, well, I'm inside uh, doing all this, but it bit him in the neck. Do you have any medical attention out there at all? Any EMT, anything like that? Um, no, um, we're just holding on to him. Now, this gentleman, is he, is he awake? Is he yeah, bleeding? Yeah, yeah, he's awake. He's bleeding pretty bad. We're putting and pressure on the on the bleed on the uh, wound. Are you there with him or no? Uh, no, I, I'm inside the office. I have another guy outside with him. Okay. So we already got help on the way. If you need further assistance, get a cell phone. When you're close to him, give us a call back. We can help guide you. Okay. Cell phones don't work out here. Oh wow. Okay. Yeah, that's why I'm inside the office. Okay. All right. All right, so when he got bit on the neck, I mean, talking an artery, or how is it? Uh, well, I, I really can't tell. You know, it's he's bleeding pretty bad, but it's not like pumping, pumping, pumping out like an artery. Okay. But, uh, yeah. So he he's, the pressure on there? Yeah. And you have him sitting or lying down? Um, he is right now. Is he sitting or lying down? He's sitting. Okay. Yeah, continue that pressure, okay? Don't let it go. We're on our way. Okay. All right, goodbye. All right. Well, the good news is caretaker Chris Orr has made a full recovery, I understand. That's good. And up next, we're live with Tippi Hedren from her preserve in Acton, California. We'll sit down and get to know what Shambhala is all about. Preventing pain, fear, and suffering of animals through nationwide education and awareness from all across the globe, this is Animal Radio. Here's your host, Hal Abrams. It is a beautiful sunny day in Acton, California. I'm sitting with Tippy Hedren. Yeah, Tippy Hedren, huh? The birds, remember? I gotta tell you something. She was on the show with us when the show first started. And I came out this time because I wanted to see what Shambhala is all about. And Shambhala is an exotic uh, animal preserve, mostly to leopards and tigers and lions. And there's an elephant, and I'll let Tippy tell us all about that. Tippy, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Hal. Thank you for being here, and welcome to Shambhala. This is such an extraordinary preserve. It's huge. How many acres? Well, we use it. We use about uh, 35 to 40 acres. Some of it goes up the hill and around, and, and we also have 32 acres that is totally undeveloped. And we've taken just a little bit of a tour. We passed some animals that are not on the regular tour that you do, uh, probably because they're not the friendliest of animals. Why it is is because we have to have... Um, another fence three feet away from the, the stationary fence so that p- people can't get their fingers in and uh, in that particular area it's leopards and mountain lions and uh, some of them have the capabilities of even though it's nine gauge fencing which is fairly small they can wiggle those little paws through so with that area is off limits simply because of that otherwise I, I would be delighted to be able to show Everyone, the mountain lions and the leopards and the and the bobcats and the servals and the lynx and all of them and the little Asian leopard cats and you know someday we'll be able to do that. I hope. <laughs> I'm going to start from the very beginning here. Where is that? The, the very beginning. Well, actually, not the very beginning. Post birds. How does Tippy Hedren get involved with cats? I did two films in Africa. And I really wanted to do the films because I wanted to go to that continent. The first one, the first film was um, with the late George Montgomery, and uh, it was titled either Satan's War, King, uh, uh, Satan's War, Devil's, uh, no, Devil's Harvest or Satan's Harvest, one of the two memorable films. However, there was uh, there was wild animals to be used in the film, which was very exciting to me. 
And uh, I remember the first day filming, it was on the, the uh, Rhodesian, now Zimbabwe, South Africa border, uh, Bites Bridge. And um, I remember the first day of filming, you know, everybody sits around a lot. And this, uh, the crew was lying around on the grass and sitting around. And, and um, the assistant director came out and he said, would everybody please rise? The lion is coming through. And I thought, oh, we're going to pay homage to the king. <laughs> and uh, the, the lion came across the veld with his human friend, and there were no restraints on the lion. Just They were just walking together, and it was just an awesome sight. And he, they walked through all of the members of the crew and went wherever they were going to go. And I later found out that the reason we were asked to stand was not to pay homage to the king, but because if you're below the height of a lion or a tiger you are subject to becoming either prey or a toy, which none of us wanted to be. Yeah, of course not. Yeah, so that was my first lesson in Lion. <laughs> and, of course, many were to follow. The second film was with uh, John, Sa John Saxon and the late Rosano Brazzi. It was called Mr. King Street's War. I just watched it the other night, and uh, I was really thrilled with the way it came out. It takes place during the Second World War. John and I are, are a husband and wife team. Um, he is doing a study of the cats, and pre I am a doctor. And we are both protecting the water holes for the animals. And, of course, the English come in and the Italians come in, and they both want the water holes. And Rosano Brazzi dies. I mean, it's a tragedy. But the upshot of the whole thing was that during the times that we'd go to the game preserves, because that was... That was the reason I wanted to be there. Uh, and watching the animals, people who lived there were saying we should have been there 10 years prior to 20 years. And also during that time, environmentalists were saying if we don't do something right now to save the animals in the wild, by the year 2000, they will be gone. And we learned about the whales, the plight of the whale. We learned about the, the problems with the panda, with the tiger and the demise of all of these species that were becoming extinct. So my then husband, who was a, a producer, mm -hmm. he was pr a, a produ a executive producer of The Exorcist, mm -hmm. um, we decided to do a movie about the animals in the wild. And after seeing a house on the Gorongosa Game Preserve in Mozambique that had been abandoned by a game warden because it flooded during the rainy seasons and it was taken over by a pride of lion, <laughs> They just cried in all of Africa. I have these wonderful pictures of my head in my head of it. We can't find any of, of them really, but uh, they were. It was a Portuguese-style home and uh, flat roof. They were uh, the lions were on the roof. Big maned lions, the svelte lionesses, the rowdy teenage lions who think they know everything, kind of like our teenagers. Yes. And the cubs, everybody, sitting in the windows, going in and out the doors. One was in a dilapidated old porch swing. and So we thought, well, let's use the big cat as our movie stars for this movie. And Because uh, almost everybody is fascinated by them for one reason or another. They may think that they're, they should be worshipped from afar, out in the wild. That is magnificent. They may be scared to death of them. That's smart. <laughs> so we wanted to do a movie about the animals in the wild and the problems they have out there just due to encroaching civilization, sport hunting, and of course, worst of all, poaching. And um, after the script was written, we started interviewing lions to do the movie. We, we were intending on using Hollywood acting animals have a nine-month shoot over and out. However... What does that mean? 
that uh, just that was that was what we were going to do make this movie nine months and okay. using Hollywood acting animals however as soon as the are, are these union animals what makes a Hollywood acting well they have trainers and they're used to doing things they'll go from point A to point B they'll they'll you know they they will be trained to do whatever okay so uh, that was our intent as but as soon as the trainers read the script and learned that we may be using 15 animals at a time 20 at a time whatever they just laughed at us and said it can't be done because of instinctual dictates to fight they didn't want their cat hurt they didn't want to be hurt so they suggested that we acquire our own animals to do the movie and of course that opened a whole can of peas mm -hmm. and the first one was a rescue and they said introduce them very carefully and you know slowly and all of that which they don't have time to do so the first one is a rescue from then on down there were rescues from people who had acquired them as pets um uh, excess zoo animals older circus animals <laughs> they weren't these were not actors mm -hmm. these were people uh, people who uh, had had their heads full filled full of smoke that were told that the, a lion or a tiger would be a good pet and of course they find that after about seven or eight months they're tearing up their house and taking a pretty good chunk out of them. Did you ever make that movie? We did. It's titled Roar, R-O-A-R. Uh, our nine month shoot turned into five years and my then husband who was playing the scientist was bitten in the left hand, his left hand. You could see canine went right through it. Didn't hit a tendon, didn't hit a muscle, didn't hit a bone, nothing. Just slipped right on out. He was lucky. Uh, and then um, by the time he was ready to come back to work, the leaves fell off the trees. Well, everything has to match, you know, so. You had to wait. So we had to wait till spring. And then, um, then I was bitten in the back of the head, so we'd have to stop. And then we'd run out of money. And then my daughter was scratched across her face. And, and we'd had one accident after the other. Our DP, Jan de Bont, who went on to do Speed and, and Twister and all those incredible films, he was scalped by a lioness. He wanted to do one of those wonderful scenes where the, you know, in the westerns, mm -hmm. where the horses come galloping toward you and then the camera goes over and you see the lion. Well, he wanted to do that with the lions. The lion. So the pit was dug and um, because we were using three to five cameras, Panaflexes all the time, uh, it had to be camouflaged on the top. Oh, yeah. And... Um, so we gave Jan and his assistant a football helmet so that he would be protected. But the football helmet prohibited him from getting to the eyepiece, so he took his off. So anyway, the lions came towards him, and the same lioness who got me in the back of the head saw this head bobbing around under the camouflage, and she just pulled his scalp off. So I'm thinking about this time, you're thinking these animals are dangerous. I don't know. I, I, you know, he had us doing such crazy things, and it was so dangerous that I look at the film now and I, I cringe with what we went through because I remember everything. Every time I see it, I am so exhausted by the end of it that it's, it's, a, it's an amazing film. You will never, ever see animals like this, and there will not be a sequel, I promise. <laughs> there will definitely not be a sequel. What made you start Shambhala? <laughs> okay, so by the time we had collected all of these animals, we gave them this paradise, 
because they're not in little cages. They're in big areas where they they have, you know, uh, all the tigers have water to play in. They have some trees they can climb. And, um, you know, one of the nicest things we do for them and one of the most important things because their, their mental health and emotional health is just as important as their physical health. We move them around so they don't get bored. So by that, by the time the film was over, this was their home. And by this time, we had known that there are so many animals that need a, need a, a home that there is really no place for them to go. Roar was filmed here? It was filmed here. We opened it. We went to Kenya to open the film. The animals remained here afterwards. And by the time, let's see, in 1981, we bought the place in 72, started the movie in 76. By 1981, we had sold the film all over the world, excepting for the United States. By 1983, all of those monies were gone. And it's, it, it's the national debt to try to keep a lion, a lion, much less. At that point, I think we had close to 100. Really? Yes. And so I formed the Roar Foundation so that we could accept donations and help to keep it going. How many animals are here? Right now, 72. We have a, we have a population of 68 to 72 all the time. We take on a 20 to plus year commitment with each of them. It's a major, major thing that goes on here. How did, uh, is it Timbo? Is it Timbo? It is Timbo. How did Timbo get here? Timbo came to us from Vancouver. Timbo's an elephant, by the way. He is an African elephant, okay. and he's 47 years old now. He came to us same year we bought the place. We thought it would be perfect to have an African elephant in our movie. So he came from, uh, he came in a van with the man who used to take care of him. I guess they just ran out of money. You know, all these wild animals are very expensive. And, and so he, we said, well, how long will it take to get here? And he, they said about three or four, three weeks, four weeks. Well, four weeks went by, five weeks went by, six weeks went by, and no Timbo. So finally he shows up in his van, and I said, so where you been, dude? <laughs> and he, and it, the, the human who drove him down, every time he'd come to one of the beautiful forests along the way, he'd you know, drive into the forest and let Timbo out just to be an elephant. Oh, wonderful. Very cool. I, I, you know, I thought that was very cool. I couldn't imagine driving down the road and seeing that. <laughs> that would uh, upset me. No, I think he would probably pulled for far enough into the forest so that it wouldn't upset Timbo. So you can learn more about this at Shambhala.org, okay? And we'll put a yeah. we'll put a link from the animal radio site to that, uh, just in case you didn't get that. Tell us, what does Shambhala mean? Shambhala is a wonderful word. It was a gift. Um, this fabulous woman who helped me put the foundation together, because it's hard to put a foundation together. And after it was finished, she said, I have a gift for you. I said, great, I love presents. Mm -hmm. And uh, she said, as a word... Shambhala, a Sanskrit word that means a meeting place of peace and harmony for all beings, animal and human. <laughs> You're listening to Animal Radio. You can learn more about today's guest at animalradio.com. Log on. Learn more. 
Did you see the paper? They mentioned cloning animals for food. Seriously? I thought cloning was still pretty experimental. It is. Most of the animals die or are born with some sort of health defect. So why is the FDA going to approve it? I don't know. It's upsetting that the FDA seems to be ignoring scientific evidence that animals in cloning suffer. And the FDA says that it won't even label cloned foods. That's outrageous. Yeah, and we could be eating meat or drinking milk from cloned animals and not even know it. Is there anything we can do to stop this? You can. Contact the American Anti-Vivisection Society at www.endanimalcloning.org to learn more about the problems with animal cloning and to help keep cloned food off grocery store shelves. Cloning animals for food is not just about food safety. Animal suffering and other ethical issues have been ignored for too long and must be considered. To learn more, visit www.endanimalcloning.org. Just because we can clone animals for food doesn't mean we should. Hey, you want to keep a secret from your dog? It's the new fish sticks from Canine Caviar. They're good for your dog's teeth, gums, and also his achy joints. And fish sticks from Canine Caviar are 100% natural, completely digestible, and contain no chemical preservatives, additives, or fillers, and they're low in calories. But don't tell your dog that. All they care about is that they taste good. Get your dog fish sticks at CanineCaviar.com. That's www.CanineCaviar.com. Every year, there are millions of pets in animal shelters across the country just waiting for a loving home. I'm Mike Farrell with a very simple message. If you're thinking of getting a pet, please adopt. To easily locate your closest place to adopt, call Pets 911 toll-free at 1-888-PETS-911. It's easy, it's free, and it gives a pet a second chance in life. Together, we can ensure a better future for our pets. For adoptable pet listings in your community, go to Pets911.com. Pets 911, proud to be partnered with Animal Radio. Angel's Eyes Tear Stain Eliminator, the first tear stain product to be formulated for dogs and cats. Angel's Eyes is a permanent solution to tear stains working from the inside out. Angel's Eyes is added to your pet's food or water, preventing the stain before it can begin. Angel's Eyes is perfectly safe to use. It is made in the USA of USA ingredients containing no dyes or wheat. Angel's Eyes is 100% guaranteed when used as directed. See for yourself. Go to www.angeleyesonline.com and check out the results. Angel's Eyes will have your pet going from tear to clear in no time at all. Hey, this is Sean Hayes on Animal Radio. Remember to spay and neuter your pets. Preventing pain, fear, and suffering of animals through nationwide education and awareness from all across the globe. This is Animal Radio. We're sitting at Chimbala in Acton, California, and I'm looking at a tiger who's taking a, a tiger nap under a tree. We've actually looked at a lot of animals here, and uh, they all seem to be very happy, kicking it under the trees, relaxing. There's even some very friendly uh, animals here uh, that I would imagine under supervision you could play with on the other side of the fence. You could you play with on the other side of the fence, exactly. <laughs> a lot of these animals here are animals that were, someone thought, hey, it would be great to have a little baby lion or a baby tiger, and they bring it in their house. And then they realize it's more than they expected. Is that correct? Hal, there's nothing cuter than a baby lion or a baby tiger. And they see these things and they say, oh, I want one. And it's an impulse buy and it's much too easy to get these pets. So they bring them home and um, they're not really told as to what they grow up to be and how fast they grow. Which is pretty fast. It's like blowing up a balloon. You can watch it every day. And all of a sudden, they go from a pound and a half at birth 
And generally, the animals are eight weeks old before they're given a, as a pet or sold as a pet. And by the time they're a year old, they weigh 125 pounds, and they have the capabilities of being a one-man demolition crew. Uh, do the people that get these, do they think, well, maybe we could make this animal friendly, or do they just, they're uneducated, or what? I think any, any one of the above. A lot of them really want this. They, they, they find a great joy in having an exotic animal. They just don't want a dog or a cat or something as normal as that. They want, they want to be the person on the block or with their friends who has a tiger, a lion. And very often they're put into a cage and very, very often they've hurt somebody and then that, then what happens to them? What happens to that animal? It just stays there. Not to mention that it's not very uh, kind to the animal to be in a small little place. It's cruel. It's cruel. It's cruel. Uh, it's, it's not good for anybody. We are coming to you live from Acton, California and the Shambhala Preserve, as well as the headquarters for the Roar Foundation, uh, titled after the movie Roar, which we learned a little bit about earlier, kind of the, the seed of how this all started. How many animals do you have here? We have 71. Okay, 71 exotic cats, and as far as I know, they're not herbivores. They're carnivores, and they eat meat. Is that correct? They eat a whole lot of meat. How much? And, uh, oh, gosh, we serve about uh, 600 pounds a day. 600 pounds of meat a day. Yes, and uh, this is this is a, a national debt that keeps you know the, the, to keep Shambhala going. Okay, well that's my question. It uh, 600 pounds of meat a day, uh, 30, 40 acres. How many acres? Well, we, we it was 35 to 40. 35 yeah. acres. You have how many employees? Uh, 12. How many volunteers? Uh, oh, about 50, 60. It costs so much, we have to raise close to a million dollars a year just to keep it going. And there is a misconception that I am rich and my family is rich and that we don't need the money. And uh, Can I say that's a fair misconception? Let me think here. Antonio Banderas, Melanie Griffith, and then, of course, you. What do you, what do you need the money for? Can't you fund this? Yeah, no, I can't. No. Uh, I do want all of the listeners to know that even when we did our movie, I didn't, uh, which incidentally you can g get through our website, Roar, R-O-A-R. Uh, I wasn't paid because as co-producer of the film, I put the money back in the movie. I've never been paid as director of the Shambhala Preserve. I've never been paid as a, as a president of the Roar Foundation. And eight years ago... So this is something from your heart. I donated all of the money, the land to the Roar Foundation so the animals will be, always be safe. From your heart. I call it my magnificent burden. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to come back with Tippi Hedren from Shambhala in Acton, California. You're listening to Animal Radio. You can learn more about today's guest at AnimalRadio.com. Log on. Learn more. Hey, this is Cesar Milan. When I'm not doing the dog whisper, I'm listening to Animal Radio. Stay balanced. Preventing pain, fear, and suffering of animals through nationwide education and awareness from all across the globe. This is Animal Radio. Here's your host, Hal Abrams. Okay, we've been sitting here for the last hour talking to Tippi Hedren, live from Acton, California at Shambhala Preserve. And we've learned uh, quite a lot about the exotic animals. i got to tell you, I'm going to snap a picture of this over there. There is a beautiful tiger just lying on his back. Look, couldn't be happier, and it makes me very happy to see him happy. Everybody should know that no wild animal is a pet, whether it's a little squirrel in the, your backyard or a Siberian tiger. And I love these animals more than my next breath, but they're not pets. 
the groove. Come out. Oh, see, we just built a new house for him. And, uh, no, that isn't even his house. Oh, that wasn't his house. No. That wasn't the old house. No. It says Snow He's a beautiful animal. He has a wonderful hairdresser. Sometimes he has bangs. And sometimes it's parted down the middle. Today it's got, he's got, see this, he's got a little tuft right in the middle of his forehead and his, uh, it's kind of parted in the middle. I think it's a statement. It's definitely, but I, I really love it when he has the bangs. It's too cute. Do you bangs. notice the other lions wanting to emulate his hairstyle? Oh, every, all of us do. Yeah. <laughs> all of us do. Yes, you handsome boy. We have a lion who was guarding a drug lord's stash. Oh, yeah, I would imagine that would be fairly popular. That, well, you, we find that a lot of the, of the drug, drug people have lions or tigers because the authorities are hesitant in coming in if they have a big cat. You know, a lot of the breeders have accused me of a lot of things, and one of them is that I live in a mansion. Oh, they accused you of living in the yes. mansion. Yes. Now, if you're confused about what a mansion looks like, there it is. That's uh, <laughs> it that's is. your mansion. Mm -hmm. Is that really your house? It is my house, and uh, I would love for you to see it. It's it actually looks very nice from the outside, but it is not. Since this is radio, I will translate for Tippy. It is by no means a mansion. You know that it's a double wide manufactured home. Is it really? Yes. Well, that's that's good to know. I was. Uh... I've added a few rooms onto it. You know, I added the front deck and I added another a bedroom and uh, a wonderful workroom. And that's John Saxon. I have John Saxon, Antonio Banderas, Rod Taylor, Marlon Brando. <laughs> Are they offended by any of these? Do they know? No, that most of them know. Yeah, and I had uh, Rod Taylor also. I mean, um, Sean Connery. Do they ever come up and visit? Um, no, they all say they're going to, but, you know, it's difficult. There's Patrick. Patrick is a... The Liger. The Liger, okay. If you've never seen a Liger, we're going to take a picture here, and we'll post it on the website for you. A combination of a tiger and a Liger. Boy, did you say, Tippy? Yeah. A very big one. Yeah, the hybrid grows to be very, very large. He's, uh, we don't really know. There he goes. See? He just runs See off. how he runs? Isn't that beautiful? And he, he's just run off around the corner. Now, I noticed this this cage is uh, joined to your house. Uh, yeah, it is. So I you look out your living room. <laughs> yeah, this is, my, this is my bedroom. Okay. And I can I can look out the window and see Patrick. And he, yeah, and he looks at me and he chuffs. And he has this basso profundo chuff. It's a oh. very deep. <laughs> how, how much would you say he weighs? Ah, uh, well, we think he's about 650, That's between big... 650 and 7. Hello, beautiful. Oh, God. Isn't he gorgeous? Hi, big handsome guy. He has a, a little mane. Uh, he has a little bit of a mane. It is absolutely spectacular here. What a world. And to wake up at it and it see it every day. You hear the lions roar all night. This one make oh, a lot of noise? Oh, he roars. Yes, he does. And he doesn't do the full session, the seven or eight roars, and then that strange bark right. at the end to say the conversation's over. And then one will get the last word in. You know, it's very cute. Wake you up at night? Right. I, it's a, it's it's a, a lullaby to me. It's a wonderful sound. A lullaby. Well, that's convenient of the train. go by all the time too. Good thing you don't have to change litters. No kidding. Yeah. <laughs> no kidding. Now we're going to go into your mansion? My mansion. Okay. It's uh, actually very beautiful. Um, well, 
It's a, it's a, not beautiful. It's charming. Yeah, I'm thinking you like cats. Yeah, you might, you might get that impression. Oh, yes. You know, we have a tremendous number of birds here. Yeah, which I, you know, you don't have birds here intentionally. No, this is these are just birds that, that live here. Did they follow you from the movie? Indigenous to the, the ravens. Yes. We have a huge flock of raven. And what a smart place for them to live. Where Isn't that they're meat eaters, you know. Strange. And they'll swoop down and they'll just pick up a great big piece of meat and off they go into the trees flying heavy. Yeah. Yeah. We're inside Tippy's place, and she has pictures of cats, wild cats everywhere you look, trees. There is no doubt that this lady is a cat lover. Uh, you've probably spent many years decorating her. Oh, yeah, and I really love doing it. I, I, don't, I do it all myself, and um, you can see the faux prints, the faux animal prints that I have. Going through the living room, and we have statues of cats and lions and stuffed, stuffed cats and elephants and all kinds of pictures. Okay. Um, this is probably one place I never, ever in my life thought I'd be, and that is in Tippy Hedron's bedroom, uh, which is absolutely beautiful. You have a canopy bed in the center of the room instead of against the wall. Yeah. And it has the leopard prints. Yes, and look up on top. It has. I put a. I put oh yes. A, I put a board up here with a with a satin pillow for my kitties, and they they jump from from here up to the. Uh, canopy top, and, uh, and they sleep up on the pillow sometimes if they're not with me. This is great. I'm looking out her bedroom window at a, at a big uh, lion. Well, that's liger. Oh, that's liger. Okay. What do the domestic cats of yours think of the big cats? Um, well, they're uh, everybody is safe. Yeah, I, I, I know that. I had no doubt about that. And so they have really no fear of them. What, do they get up on top of the windowsill and, and look out at oh, the liger? Yeah, and the, sometimes they'll they'll hiss at the servals, and the, her servals will hiss back. And Our visit with Tippy Hedrick ended early that evening. Definitely a once-in-a-lifetime experience. If you get a chance to visit Shambhala, please go ahead and do so if you can volunteer or help in any way, shape, or form let them know. You can learn more about Shambhala at Shambhala.org and don't forget we'll put a link from AnimalRadio.com You're listening to Animal Radio You can learn more about today's guest at AnimalRadio.com Log on, learn more This is Glenn Close on Animal Radio and remember how very, very important it is to spay or neuter your pet Hey, all you animal lovers out there. Last February, I had my dog Rudy neutered during Spay Day USA. This year, I'm going to enter him in the pet photo contest at humanesociety.org slash spayday. It runs January 15th through February 29th. You can upload your pet's picture, get your friends to vote for him, and win some cool prizes. So get out there and take some pictures. Good luck trying to beat my Rudy. Presented by the Humane Society of the United States. Sponsored by Nature's Miracle and powered by Pets 911. Upload your pet photo at humanesociety.org slash spayday. Did you see the paper? They mentioned cloning animals for food. Seriously? I thought cloning was still pretty experimental. It is. Most of the animals die or are born with some sort of health defect. So why is the FDA going to approve it? I don't know. It's upsetting that the FDA seems to be ignoring scientific evidence that animals in cloning suffer. And the FDA says that it won't even label cloned foods. That's outrageous. Yeah, and we could be eating meat or drinking milk from cloned animals and not even know it. Is there anything we can do to stop this? You can. Contact the American Anti-Vivisection Society at www.endanimalcloning.org to learn more about the problems with animal cloning and to help keep cloned food off grocery stores.
store shelves. Cloning animals for food is not just about food safety. Animal suffering and other ethical issues have been ignored for too long and must be considered. To learn more, visit www.endanimalcloning.org. Just because we can clone animals for food doesn't mean we should. Fido-Friendly Magazine. Perhaps you can do without it, but for kibble's sake, think of your dog. At last, a voice for us traveling canines. Until now, few have taken mobile pooches seriously. After all, who appreciates warm shelter and a comfy bed more than a dog? Fido-Friendly, the travel magazine for you and your dog. A quarterly guide to Fido-Friendly accommodations in the United States and Canada. Because if Fido ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. Subscribe at FidoFriendly.com. Your dog will thank you. At Onesto Organics, we believe in whole foods for the whole animal. All of our human-grade organic pet foods are unrefined and dehydrated to preserve vital nutrients. Our veggie hides for dogs are delicious, nutritious, and completely free of grain, gluten, corn, and soy. Onesto Organics, we're all about healthful goodness for your pet. Honestly, nothing less will do. Check us out at www.onestoorganics.com. Preventing pain, fear, and suffering of animals through nationwide education and awareness. From all across the globe, this is Animal Radio. We expect our pets to give us unconditional love and affection, but our pets could also put us in danger. Hi, everybody. I'm Dr. Jim Humphreys for Animal Radio. From super bacteria to deadly viruses, it may seem that our pets are out to get us. The good news is most of these diseases are completely preventable and, frankly, fairly rare. Diseases that are spread from animals to people are known as zoonotic diseases. Now, that word looks like zoonotic, but it's actually pronounced zoonotic diseases. Rabies is the best known and perhaps the oldest of all zoonotic diseases. Only found in mammals, the rabies virus was commonly spread by dogs and cats in this country. Strict vaccination protocols have diminished the threat from our pets through the Western world. But still worldwide, more than 40,000 human cases still occur of rabies. Bacteria are also a common problem, including the so-called superbug or MRSA, the methicin-resistant staphylococcus that you may have heard of recently. These bacteria can be found on the human skin, and in rare cases, death has occurred from infection with MRSA. And although pets can harbor these bacteria, there's not been a strong correlation yet showing transmission from people to pets. Leptospirosis is another bacterium that has the potential to infect humans as well as our pets. More than 200 species of Leptospira exist, often living in damp soils, mud, and even fresh water. Characterized by fever, chills, and headaches, lepto has the potential to cause kidney failure. Again, in both your pets and in you. Likewise, salmonella, another soil-dwelling bacterium, can also cause severe illness in humans. Salmonella is often associated with reptiles, but any pet with diarrhea could potentially spread salmonella to an owner. Horse owners who spread the manure in their vegetable gardens might be at risk for salmonella, as well as anyone who drinks groundwater that is contaminated by animal feces runoff. Parasites have evolved to coexist with their host species quite well, but when they find their way to a different host, the consequences can be deadly. 
Common roundworms that are found in almost all puppies and kittens have been known to cause organ failure and even blindness in people. The Centers for Disease Control estimate that more than 10,000 people in the United States test positive for roundworms every year, and more than 750 of these people will partially lose their vision. Thankfully, almost all of these diseases that are associated with our pets can be prevented. The routine vaccination of our pets has diminished human fatalities due to rabies and leptospirosis, now very uncommon in the United States. Routine hand washing is another effective means of reducing contamination with either Salmonella or Staphylococcus bacteria. It will also help minimize exposure to internal parasites such as roundworms. Be sure to teach your kids wash their hands. Above all, your veterinarian is the best resource for understanding these zoonotic diseases and how to avoid them. Don't allow your unfounded fears to dictate your happiness with your four-legged friends. For the Veterinary News Network at MyVNN.com, I'm Dr. Jim Humphreys reporting for Animal Radio. The Animal Minute is brought to you by Urinoff, the number one vet-recommended urine odor and stain remover. To purchase, visit www.urinoff.com. You're not finally something that works. Dogs or cats, horse or emu, animals are people too. They're furry, but then they have that long, weird, hairless tail and a pouch. They're opossums, and they've been around since the dinosaurs. They're North America's only marsupial, which means they're closer to a kangaroo than a raccoon. And unlike raccoons and skunks, they rarely carry rabies. They have 50 teeth, the most teeth of any mammal, but they're actually pretty docile and would prefer to be left alone. When they get nervous, they play possum, which is actually in an involuntary coma where they get all stiff and appear dead. Most predators leave them alone after that. If one gets in your home, you can get him out pretty easily with a trail of cat food. I'm Britt Savage for Animal Radio. Animals are people too. Animal Radio. There's lots of reasons to need a urine odor and stain remover. Your dog's afraid of thunderstorms. Cat hates being alone. You've moved into a new house. But there's only one reason to buy Urinoff, because it actually works. Urinoff's high-performance formula gets to the source of the problem and removes it permanently, even cat urine. Many odor removers claim to work, but thousands of loyal Urinoff customers, even vets, swear by it. If urine odor is a problem in your home, reach for Urinoff, the odor remover that actually works. Available exclusively at www.urinoff.com or your local vet. Animal Radio is brought to you by the American Anti-Vivisection Society. Stop the FDA from allowing milk and meat from cloned animals to be sold in grocery stores. Contact the American Anti-Vivisection Society for information at www.endanimalcloning.org. Preventing pain, fear, and suffering of animals through nationwide education and awareness. From all across the globe, this is Animal Radio. Welcome back to Animal Radio. We have Dr. Marty Becker joining us from Good Morning America. We just saw you on there. You're, you're, uh, you're like their resident vet. You're the one they call on, huh? You're the I, your go-to guy. I've been on there 11 years. That long? You actually live in the back, and you spend your time between uh, Idaho and living in the Good Morning America studios in just like a little cubicle, right? You know, the former the former GMA veterinarian there, uh, you know, passed away under some un- unfortunate circumstances, <laughs> but he, he was one of People Magazine's 25 Sexiest Men. His name is Steve Kritzik. 
Uh-huh. I'm not even one of Boundary County. 20, Boundary County, Idaho is 25 sexiest men, so it's <laughs> certainly not related to looks. It's kind of like getting on the team, and if you don't do too bad a job, you get you just get to stay on there. That's more. Well, but you're you're a bevy of knowledge, and that's why I'm calling you today. I want to figure out what's the deal with this breed specific food. Now, since the pet food recall, there's been a whole bunch of different marketing campaigns coming towards the consumer with all kinds of different food and all kinds of twists and angles. Raw food. I don't know what to buy, what not to buy, but I do know that this breed specific food raises a question in my mind. Is it really necessary? So there's a Labrador Retriever food, a Golden Retriever food, a Yorkshire Terrier food, a Poodle food. Uh, and then there's also breed-specific food for cats, you know, Persians and Siamese. Uh, this was recommended to me by some nutritionists, so I spent quite a bit of time looking into this, and it was fascinating what they do. Like, for example, you know, Labrador Retrievers, if you want to see, uh, you know, something wolf their food down or actually inhale it, it's Labrador Retrievers. And, you know, for these greedy eaters, they actually have a specially designed larger kibble for labs so that they eat slower. Good Mm -hmm. idea. Uh, With Labrador Golden Retrievers, you know, I have a Golden Retriever, and they have lots of skin problems, you know, what we call hot spots. Mm -hmm. And so they actually have this group of B vitamins and amino acids that act in synergy to kind of improve the skin's barrier function against uh, antigens and bacteria. Yorkshire Terriers, you know, they've got a... A uh, you know a lot of dental disease in little Yorkies, and so they have a, a specially designed kibble that has a brushing effect on the teeth, and then also has an ingredient that binds the salivary calcium to prevent it from being incorporated into the plaque. You know the tartar you get; uh-huh. it takes the minerals, you know, with the with the calcium that binds it up there to make that real hard, you know, brownish gray looking stuff. It actually mm. binds the calcium in the saliva to prevent it from being made into tartar. Mm. Poodles. You know, poodles have curly hair, and, and uh, you know, my mom's always goes in and gets her permanent. Well, this kind of food actually has sulfur-containing amino acids so that the poodle's coat is curlier. Is that wild? Oh, wow. And the Siamese, you know, Siamese, we like color points, and they've actually found out that the color can be enhanced by certain nutrients. So they have uh, nutrients like copper and amino acids like phenolphthalamine, and they, they're used in the production of pigment by the hair cells, so the net result is a more intense color. Uh, Wait, well, you're telling me there's a breed-specific food out there for my Siamese cat that will actually make him more colorful? Yes. Okay. And I'm only going to give you one more example. This was fascinating to me. The Persian, they tested, I actually looked at the, at the studies on this. They t- t- tested 10 different kibble shapes for Persian. Persians have them that pushed-in face that makes them special, but it's hard oh. for them to grasp food. Oh. So the kibble is actually an almond shape, which was the one of the ten types analyzed was found to be the easiest for the Persian to apprehend. And because they have a lot of hair and get more prone to hairballs, they have a higher level of hairball prevention than the other cat formulas. It really does make sense to check out these breed-specific pet foods at our yeah. pet store, right? Yeah, that, that. And then the other thing that's just fascinating to me, uh, and actually, I actually started feeding this. Remember, we've talked about food puzzles. You know, I'm a big fan of food puzzles uh-huh. before. Um, there's a new single-piece meal called Whole Meals. And, uh, you know, kind of the, the idea is here that, you know, humans are the ones that decided pets should be fed in bowls, not dogs. And so they kind of let, the, you know, you appeal to your dog's inner wolf and let biology trump the bowl. And rather than feeding dry kibble or canned food, you feed this biometrically designed single-piece uh, single meal. Mm-hmm. So it's, a, it's 100% nutritionally complete, but it also addresses the dog's physiology and enjoyment. 
And when they, when they look at this, it takes four to six times longer to eat a whole meal, this single-piece meal, than it does tartar or canned food. Now, here's the fascinating thing. You feed this whole meal, so it's 100% nutritionally complete food. It, it, you get these, when the dogs grab these whole meals, they always, like our dogs, will run off. So they guard their food. They're looking around, you know, area scanning, and little crumbs come off, and they, 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 they crumb scavenge, they call it. But dogs fed this food for four weeks, had a 43% reduction in plaque and an 83% reduction in tartar buildup. So uh, there, there again, and we talked about a dental vaccine before. Here's a way, an 83% reduction in tartar just with the food you feed. It's just like edible toothbrushes. That sounds very cool. We're going to have to check that out, and we'll put a link from uh, AnimalRadio.com to that website there, as well as to your website, PetConnection.com. Dr. Marty Becker, thanks so much for joining us again. Thank you, friend. That's all we have for this week. Remember, there's lots more streaming online 24-7 at AnimalRadio.com. Remember, please spay or neuter. Don't declaw and adopt from your local shelter. Have a great week. Bye-bye. This is Animal Radio Network.